Missouri Democrats have long sought to make inroads in St. Charles County, a fast-growing suburb with residents that tend to support conservative candidates. Senator Bill Eigel is hoping to help keep his county in GOP hands by running a strong race for re-election. The St. Charles County Republican joins us on Politically Speaking to talk about why he deserves another four years in office and how his county could affect congressional redistricting in 2021. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision, and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. I'm out here in scenic and majestic Cottleville, Missouri with our special guest, the state senator for the 23rd district. Bill Igel. So we are recording this outside, socially distanced at a St. Louis bread company. So if you hear car noise or wind, are people crying freedom across the street since we are in St. Charles, uh, do not be alarmed. Uh, senator Igel is running for re-election against Democrat Richard Orr, who we're gonna have on a separate show, probably the day after this comes out, because I think it's worthwhile to have candidates talk about St. Charles County. We've had a lot about St. Louis County and the city. Uh, why did you decide to run for a second term? And, and why do you feel like you're the, the person to represent, I guess, Eastern and parts of Central St. Charles County in the Missouri Senate? Uh, absolutely, great question. And Jason, thanks for having me on here. Uh, this afternoon in beautiful St. Charles, as you mentioned. Uh, I've, there is, when I went down to Jefferson City in 2016, I had a long list of items of things that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to be able to cut taxes. I wanted to be able to protect life. I wanted to be able to fight for liberty uh, and personal responsibility in our capital city. What I've come to find is that that message and that mission is far more involved and difficult than I imagined it first would be when I ran in 2016. And even though for the past four years we've had some pretty big successes, which uh, I would point out the large tax cut that we passed in 2018, which was the largest tax cut we've ever had in the state in a single year in the state of Missouri. Uh, we passed the so-called heartbeat bill, which banned abortions after eight weeks. It, it feels like government is still getting bigger and there are more threats to our liberty today, uh, maybe even than there were in 2016. So I think there's a lot more work to do. There's a lot more areas that we can defend citizens. And so I'm asking the citizens of St. Charles to send me back for four more years and then that will be it because we do have term limits here in Missouri. One of the things that I've heard consistently throughout the last mm, 14 years of covering Missouri politics is Democrats have said to me, well, this is gonna be the cycle where we finally make a strong push into St. Charles County. And their, their, their thought process is a lot of organized labor members moved here from North St. Louis County, even if they're more socially conservative than say people in St. Louis City, they, they were Democrats at some point. Why do you feel like that's never gonna happen? Because there's also people who say like, there's a better chance of Green County flipping than St. Charles County, including the person that's talking right now. But mm -hmm. yeah, wh why do you think Democrats have thought that St. Charles is, is fertile territory for them. Well, I, I think it's been real difficult for the Democratic message to, to catch, catch, 
catch on here in St. Charles County. I mean, if you look from a numbers perspective, in 2016, Greene County, which you mentioned, uh, provided a net vote total of 20,000 votes to President Donald Trump uh, in terms of the, the raw vote totals. St. Charles County, which was the is the largest Republican stronghold in the state, provided Donald Trump over 60,000 votes. So we're literally in the largest Republican stronghold of the state. We're growing. Uh, we're the fastest growing county in the state. And as a result, we've gotten that way via a low tax, low regulation environment. And so I think when the Democrats come in, they want to turn back on the policies that have made St. Charles so successful in the first place. That's a difficult message for them to get through. And the numbers just aren't in their favor right now. So uh, I know that's been a target of theirs, but I'm not sure this is going to be the year. One one race that does include a big part of your district, if not all of your district, is the second congressional district race between Jill Shoup and Ann Wagner. And I'm going to be talking with Congresswoman Wagner in the coming days, but it's pretty clear like for her to win another term against a very tough opponent like your colleague, Senator Jill Shoup, she not only has to hold down her losses in St. Louis County, but she needs a really strong showing in St. Charles County. What's kind of your feel for how this area is is responding to that contest because I'm sure there's a lot of Democratic organization and money to turn out Democratic votes in St. Charles County. Well, absolutely. And first, let's talk about just how important St. Charles County is to that particular race. A U.S. congressional district has about 700,000 people. And of the 700,000 people that are currently in the second congressional district, about 100,000 of them are in St. Charles. In spite of only 100,000 being in St. Charles, Ann Wagner's almost her entire margin of victory in 2018 came from those 100,000 people in St. Charles. So it's very difficult to underestimate or understate the importance uh, to Congresswoman Wagner and Republicans of making sure we're turning out the vote in St. Charles. Now, I know that's going to have some further questions about what redistricting looks like in a couple of years, but uh, St. Charles is a conservative Republican stronghold, and, and Ann Wagner's got to have it. Well, let's segue into that point. Uh, We've talked a lot about state legislative redistricting on this show, probably too much. Uh, people are probably like, stop talking about state legislative redistricting. I don't care about that topic anymore. So we're not going to talk about the fight over clean Missouri. We're <laughs> going to talk about congressional redistricting, which will not change regardless of what happens with Amendment 3. The legislature will have the final say over the congressional maps. And what I have heard is regardless of whether Ann Wagner or Jill Shoup win, there is going to be a push to put most, if not all of St. Charles County, probably in the second congressional district, because there's been a desire from St. Charles Republicans to have a St. Charles centric congressional district long before you were in office. You're, if you win against uh, Democrat Richard Orr, you'll, you'll have a strong voice in making that happen potentially. What's kind of your mindset on whether what I just described is a realistic possibility or not. Well, first of all, I think it's a realistic possibility just if you look at the numbers. And again, you know I'm a numbers kind of guy. Uh, a congressional district, as I mentioned, has about 700,000 individuals. Well, right now, with the population growth that we've seen in St. Charles, St. Charles is now over 400,000. So if drawn into the same district, St. Charles County alone could represent a majority of a United States congressional district. Now, Blaine Luchtenmeyer and Ann Wagner have been great for St. Charles. They have done a lot of fantastic things for St. Charles. But to your point, uh, I think there has definitely been a move to try to put all of St. Charles in the same district. And 
this might be the fine this might finally be the year in which that happened so uh, and that makes sense because as being part of the largest stronghold in the state you want st charles to have that voice if you're a republican now especially if jill shoop wins if you draw her into a district that is all of st charles and let's just say for the sake of argument a big chunk of jefferson county too mm -hmm. because you probably will need about 800,000 people uh, there may be like a, a big push to do that from Republicans because that would be a much more Republican district than the current second congressional district. But as we'll talk about later in the show, there, depending on what happens in the governor's race and depending on what happens in two Senate races, there may not be a veto-proof majority to override a veto, especially if Ann Wagner becomes, excuse me, especially if Nicole Galloway becomes governor. Uh, how does that calculate into putting St. Charles into one district about the governor's race and the rate and the result of Koenig Lavender and Baker Rowden, which we're going to talk about later in the show? Well, first of all, I would say that because of the changing demographics of St. Louis County, uh, we've seen what used to be a very strong Republican district become very competitive, as we're seeing this year. I think that no matter what happens in November, there's going to be a very, very, very strong push to see that district uh, represent its common communities of interest in western St. Louis County, St. Charles County, uh, and maybe even Warren County and Lincoln County. You mentioned Jefferson County. I actually just, uh, having looked at the map uh, from time to time, I think it might actually be difficult to draw a district that somehow tries to incorporate too much of St. Louis County and then plus Jefferson County if you've got all of St. Charles County in there. Uh, so what I actually may think happen is you may see a, kind of a, a split where the second district moves more to the northwest and the third district actually comes in from the southwest. In that scenario where that happens, without getting too much of the weeds, could you see like a 30-way primary where every St. Charles Republican tries to run for Congress, including you, Senator Onder, <laughs> former Senator Dempsey, Senate, former Senator Gross, Elman, who else is from St. Charles County? Like some celebrity from St. Clark, maybe Brock Olivo would get in uh, into that race too. No, honestly, I don't. Uh, now for any of these positions, you're always gonna have two or three individuals that want to compete in a primary. And as you know, I've been a part of some very exciting primaries in the past already. But what, I'm, what I've come to the realization of, and I think what other Republicans have come to the realization of, is that if you have a desire to serve, if you have the ability to raise resources, and you have the ability to articulate the Republican message, there's always going to a place, there's always going to be a position that's right for you to run for without having 30 people all in the same primary. So St. Charles County has a strong central committee that has some voice in this particular process, and I expect that to continue. Uh, we'll see what the districts look like. But right now, I think most of our focus, of course, is still just focused on uh, 2020. Well, let's talk about another issue that could affect the outcome in St. Charles and anywhere else, and that's COVID-19. Um, unlike St. Louis County, uh, St. Charles County does not have a mask mandate. I think the restrictions are a lot looser than St. Louis County. Um, what has been the reaction to your constituents about the differences between the two places? Because People in St. Louis County may look at what's going on in St. Charles County and like these people are being wholly irresponsible, like they should be wearing masks everywhere. But I think maybe the reason why there aren't stricter guidelines is just maybe there's not public support for it. So what has been the reaction of how St. Charles has handled COVID-19? 
Well, if you look from the business perspective, business all along St. Charles, up and down the 94 corridor, St. Charles City, down in the Main Street areas and further west into the county itself, uh, has been incredibly positive for business uh, in St. Charles because a lot of the folks that are unhappy with the policies in St. Louis County are crossing the river maybe for the first time on a regular basis to uh, spend their dollars and enjoy their time over in St. Charles County. There has absolutely been far more hesitancy about the minute-to-minute -minute in involvement in your personal space when it comes to masks or other restrictions from residents of St. Charles County than what we've seen so far from guys like Sam Page. I happen to think that that's hurting Sam Page and his re-election commit uh, or effort, but nonetheless, uh, there's been a, a lot more from the county executive in St. Charles, uh, County Executive Steve Ellman, to some of the legislative leaders like myself and Senator Onder. You've really seen a hesitancy to get government involved involved in things that quite honestly they, they can't enforce. Uh, mass mandates uh, enforced to the letter of the law are unenforceable and it becomes very difficult when you try to get try to put government in that position in the first place. How do you think Governor Parson has handled the COVID-19 pandemic? I, I, I've been very happy with Governor Parson's response. You know, he has declined to try to enforce statewide mask mandates that I think would close down the economy further and that would try to get state level government involved in our minute to minute personal space. But uh, certainly I've also been happy with the, the fact of what he has done as far as tracking the hospitalization rates, having uh, emergency equipment on standby to go to the parts of the state that it's needed. That's what you're looking for with government. You don't need government coming in telling you when, where, and how often to, to wear a mask. Do you think that, hang on a second, I'm gonna let that go. <laughs> Even though it, it, it helps with the ambiance, I just think it's, that's a little much. You know, one of the things I've been asking candidates is, I, I don't disagree with, with you. I think if there was a statewide mask mandate, there's a real question about how you could enforce that, especially in outstate Missouri, with, with health departments that aren't that large and going to cities that are far apart from each other. But just to play devil's advocate, if there was a mask mandate and there was a signal from state government that people need to wear a mask in certain situations, when there's in public. Do you think that more people would be wearing them and do you think that the numbers in Missouri would be lower? Uh, well, that, that's that's speculation. I'm not, I'm not sure that that, uh, I'm not sure what that would actually look like. I, I can tell you that uh, there are areas of the state that don't that are have a lot looser restrictions that haven't hit, been hit nearly as hard as areas like St. Louis or St. Louis City. I, I think that the role for government is to be prepared as much as it can in terms of supplies. I think the role for government is to uh, take very basic steps, uh, but most of this has to come, uh, government cannot be a guarantor of your immediate moment-to-moment -moment personal security and safety. It just can't. It's not efficient enough, it's not big enough, uh, and if you try to put it in that position, you're gonna be disappointed with the results. And the results in this case, where we've seen government go too far, is that it's been incredibly damaging to our economy when it shut our businesses down. It's been it's been treading on some concerns about personal liberty as it tries to uh, determine whether or not we should be wearing a mask. And if we do wear a mask, what type of mask do we, are we going to wear? So there's, there's if, if you research this, and I know you have, there's there's indications on both sides about the effectiveness or the efficacy of, of masks. And so I just like to try to keep government out of that. And that's generally been an opinion that's been shared by St. Charles County and some of the other collar counties around St. Louis. I think the CDC has generally said that they're effective at, at stopping COVID, at least like when you wear a mask. And we're, again, we're outside right now. We're, I think we're more than six feet apart. Neither of us are wearing masks right now. 
but like I think that the CDC has said like in certain situations when you're indoors are you know six feet apart or are or less you probably should wear masks as a way to stop uh, transmitting COVID-19 that's what I've heard from the CDC for example sure uh, and you know I mean it's there's also a component when you start enforcing those types of mandates you know we could get rid of all car crashes in the country uh, and eliminate vehicular deaths by eliminating every vehicle in the nation as well. But if we did that, of course, the damage to our economy, the damage and change to our way of life is probably not something that folks want to consider. So I think there is to a certain extent here. And no, uh, wearing a mask is not like getting rid of your car, but at the same time, there's only so much government can do. And if everybody wears a mask, but I've, I've walked around town and seen folks wearing a mask that have it not covering their nose, or it might not be uh, uh, the same type of mask or as strong as a mask. So again, I, I'm very comfortable and I've always said, anybody that believes they want to wear a mask for their own personal safety or their own personal security, I'm more than supportive of. But I'm just not concerned, I'm just not convinced that it's the role of government to be telling folks when and where that's necessary. We'll be right back after this short break with Senator Bill Eigel. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Senator Bill Eigel. I want to talk about the Conservative Caucus, which you are a member of. Um, and there's probably be a, there's going to be at least seven members in 2021 because Rick Bratton and Mike Moon both won their primaries. I believe the Conservative Caucus supported both of them. Not saying that they're going to agree with everything. Like Mike Moon, for example, is a wild card in a lot of things. But what's going to be your agenda next year? What are going to be some issues that this group of at least seven, possibly eight, are going to push for? Well, the first thing I would say is the, the agenda of the Conservative Caucus is, is pulled directly from the planks of the Republican platform. So everything that you've ever seen me fought for or fought against has been either because something is, is, is pulled directly from those planks or is in direct opposition to that. So in a very basic level, I, I expect that to continue. I, I guess the real question is, you know, there's been some frustration of why we can't move further policy like education reform, uh, like tax reform, like tax cuts. And we're trying to ask ourselves, why are these issues being slowed up so much in a legislature that has Republican supermajority. So I don't think our focus is going to change. I think that we're going to have more horsepower, as it were, uh, to have our message heard, to have our voice be heard. But, you know, everything that happens in the legislature is built on relationships. We have great relationships with our colleagues. I expect that to continue. And, you know, my hope is that with some increased uh, emphasis on a few issues like education reform and tax reform, we can make a little more progress. Let's talk about education. One of the things that I think could become a lot more pronounced, especially if Governor Parson wins a full four-year term, is charter schools. There's been a push to expand charter schools for many years beyond where they are now. Mm -hmm. It often runs into opposition, not only among Democrats, but also rural Republicans. Do you think that that could be something your caucus gets behind and really puts their foot down and says, we're either going to allow the expansion of charter schools or we're going to just use our collective force to gum up the works, so to speak? Well, as, as you know, I've, I've been the sponsor of the, the charter expansion bill in Missouri for all four years in uh, as I've been in the Senate. And certainly, I think that other individuals in the conservative caucus and outside of the conservative caucus are supportive of moving education reform legislation along. Uh, it has run into some roadblocks, 
And which was always surprising to me because at the same time we were offering changes that would expand charter schools in the state of Missouri, we were also offering certain accountability measures for charter schools that never had existed before so that not only do we want to have charter schools, we want to have good performing charter schools. And the accountability measures that we offered as part of a good compromise would make sure that, yep, there's going to be more opportunity for charters, but they better be well performing or they're not, they're not going to survive. So I, I think that that's a message that's very reasonable. And if you approach it from that, I think that is something that uh, we could get, get behind. Now, when you look at the politics of gumming up the, the system, as you mentioned in the Senate, well, uh, certainly there have been issues where we've done that. Uh, I, I find we do that a lot more when we run into issues that we uh, really philosophically disagree with. But like at the same time, I've been in the Senate four years now, and we've yet to pass uh, through the legislature a major education reform bill. So there does come a point at which we've got to, you know, take a little bit firmer stance with this and really expect that education reform, which is a core plank of the Republican platform, is something that's going to get a vote. I want to present the devil's advocate argue, argument again. Opponents of charter schools feel that they're parasitic elements that actually take away money from traditional public schools, especially in struggling school districts like the city of St. Louis, and I guess there's one or two in St. Louis County. That argument's going to be brought up a lot if something like this comes forward, and I'm sure it has when you have brought it forward. What would be your response to that? Well, my response to that is charter schools are public schools, first of all. Uh, they use public dollars to create an institution of learning for our kids. But the second thing is that I would say is the legislature's commitment to public education, actually Republican or Democrat, increases every single year. And in an, in an, an environment in which that doesn't change, and I don't see that changing regardless of charter schools passing or not, our public schools in Missouri will continue to see record amounts of revenue and resources available to educate our kids. Interestingly enough, in spite of the record revenues that we're spending on public education right now, there are a lot of folks in the state of Missouri that aren't happy with the results, the math scores, the uh, English scores, the reading scores. And so we need, also need to recognize that more money for something isn't always in and of itself the fix. So, for folks that are concerned that resources are going to be drawn away from education, education spending is at all-time high and regardless, I expect that to continue. But offering parents choice when it comes to where they can send their children and creating an environment of competition, I think is something that uh, will make it, without costing any money, will make the overall system better. I'm going to ask a similar question to what I asked Senator Ronder about prescription drug monitoring program. Mm -hmm. it, it came very close to passing this year. I think the lack of it passing didn't really have to do with the final product, but kind of like end of session horse trading and politics. Yeah. Uh, there is kind of a, a wrinkle when the legislature returns, and that is Holly Rader, who is the House sponsor, is going to become Senator Rader almost certainly. I don't know if she has a Democratic opponent, but her district is like 90% Republican. Do you think that that issue finally comes to a conclusion in 2021 where it passes and people can move on, basically? Well, it could. Uh, you know, interestingly, one of the developments in the PDMP discussion has been the fact that Franklin County, who had a local PDMP, uh, made the decision a few months back uh, to exit their local PDMP program because they felt they were spending money and not getting any good results from it to justify its existence. And were they part of the St. Louis County system, basically? Okay, continue. So, yes, they were part of the St. Louis local program. It's the same program that's in effect here in St. Charles. And they had had that program in effect, I think, for a year or two before they came to the realization that it wasn't working. So what I'm kind of curious how 
how can we move forward with a further conversation about state level PDMP when the local areas themselves are starting to come to the realization that these programs are not all they're meant to be. Now, uh, I, I know uh, soon to be Senator Hawley very well, or Senator Rader very well, and uh, she has some fantastic perspectives on that. I actually think that uh, her working with the conservative caucus may be the only way that PDMP actually gets across the, the finish line in the coming year. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to working with her to see if there's a path forward with that, uh, and we'll make every attempt. But uh, it, the PDMP discussion, as I said, given what's happening at the local level, may be changing beyond even where we expect. Yeah, and it's not to say that Senator Rader is like a liberal or anything, not but she all. clearly differed from your caucus on prescription drug monitoring programs. So I think that that's one of the reasons her being in the Senate, you typically have more leverage as a senator than an individual House member. Though, no question. To be, to be candid, she did a pretty good job of leveraging the House, given that I think that the <laughs> speaker supported that. But let's talk about uh, what I was mentioning and alluding to before about how many members the conservative caucus will have. And that's because Senator Andrew Koenig, a member of the Conservative Caucus, is in arguably the most competitive Senate race in the entire state. Are you surprised this race is close? I mean, this district was not competitive four years ago, probably because the Democratic candidate was, and I'm going to be charitable here, not very good. Now he's running against a very good candidate and state representative Deb Lavender. And it seems like a genuine toss-up. Like, how do you, why is that race important for the future of your caucus? Well, first of all, let's talk about uh, that Senate 15 in, in West St. Louis County. You know, that particular race was a, a race that Senator Koenig won by 23 points in 2016, first of all. So uh, in a year in which I think some folks are concerned that uh, the president's margins, Republicans' margins may be a little bit less, Senator Koenig starts from a pretty good cushion. Uh, and the reason he starts from a good cushion is because he already had a message, a guy that's going to stand up for law and order, as a guy that's going to stand up for life, as a guy that's going to stand up for less regulation and less taxes on business owners. And I think that uh, that's going to continue to serve him well. Now, do I think it's a, a foregone conclusion that he's going to be successful? Well, no. And I think that's reflected in the fact that uh, he's out there working very hard. He's knocking on doors and uh, he's going to have all the resources that he needs in order to get his message uh, out to the folks that live in that particular district. Because of that, I think he's ultimately going to be successful. And I think that uh, I could, although I could envision a world in which we're seeing some narrowing in St. Louis County in particular of previous Republican margins, I don't know that I, I can envision seeing the margins uh, shrink by more than 20 points. Uh, uh, you mentioned the president, and I think that it's pretty much a foregone conclusion he's not going to win Missouri by 19 points this time around. Uh, I don't know how much he's going to win by. It could be as little as, like, you know, Biden winning by 0.1%, which I think is unlikely, to him winning by 5 to 10, which I think is pro a, a probable outcome. Mm -hmm. um, why, why do you think what, what I think that Trump is probably still popular in St. Charles County in most parts of there, but he seems to be deeply unpopular in some traditionally Republican areas in St. Louis County, which is why the 15th district race is competitive in the first place. Do you have any theories why? Like, why is he popular in St. Charles County, but not St. Louis County? Well, uh, the, the problems he's having in St. Louis County are reflective of the same problems that he's having in many of the suburbs across the country. And, I th you know, Donald Trump is a very candid, very uh, straight shooting, uh, sometimes overly candid uh, candidate that uh, does, on one hand, a fantastic job articulating and 
uh, executing a plan for a strong America, but on the other hand has a tendency to be a little abrasive from time to time that causes him to struggle in some of these suburbs. Now, out here in St. Charles, a lot of the folks that have left St. Louis City and St. Louis County to move to St. Charles were, the, um, were amongst the most passionate Republicans to begin with. So we haven't seen those effects take hold. A lot of folks out here in St. Charles are focusing on the positives that he brings to the table. That may be not so much the case in St. Louis County, and, and those are going to be headwinds that we're going to have to deal with. But uh, I still think that there is a strong uh, conservative element of, of particularly West County in St. Louis and towards the southern reaches of that county. And I, I think that ultimately that's going to be very good for, for Andrew Caney. So let's talk about a race that's a little bit farther away from here, and that is the Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden running against Democrat Judy Baker. We talked a little bit about this on the Onder podcast. So what I've heard from multiple people is that the same groups that are supporting people like Deb Lavender and Doug Beck, unions, attorneys, people, Democrats with a lot of money, are not giving the same amount of money to Judy Baker for two reasons. Number one, that they don't want to run afoul of the person that could become the Senate president pro tem and is the majority leader and decides like which legislation goes on the floor and which doesn't. The second is more interesting though, a lot of those groups are fearful that if he loses, he'll be replaced by a member of the conservative caucus, and they would rather have Caleb Rowden than one of your caucus members. I'm sure you've heard that before. What's your reaction to me articulating what has been told to me by many, many people? Well, so uh, the first thing I say is all, I can tell you that a lot of money is being spent by both sides, uh, Democrat and Republican in that race. And if you look through the MEC reports, you're going to see the traditional supporters of both the Republican and Democratic Party on both of those MEC reports. And, and that, that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Um, I also would would I have to wonder if um, in the event that we're not successful in that district, I mean, we really don't know what would happen in, in a possible leadership race after that. Uh, we don't know who would take over. And honestly, we don't know uh, what how that person would guide the chamber through. And I think that that's the same calculation that Democratic special interests are making, that Republican special interests are making. Um, I, I happen to think that I think it, it's been uh, the, the vulnerability that we have in Columbia has been uh, overlooked to a certain degree. Uh, you know, this was a district back in 2016 that Donald Trump uh, did not win, or in, excuse me, Boone County did not win. Uh, but in a year in which Donald Trump won by 19 points, uh, Caleb won his race by two points. And that Against was, a very, very good candidate, Stephen Weber, by the way. Uh, but also that was on the back of more than $2 million that the Republican Party yes, spent. Absolutely. Uh, and yes, Stephen Weber was a good candidate, but in a year in which Donald Trump loses 10 to 15 points, uh, we've got a real fight on our hands there. This wasn't, uh, this isn't like Andrew Koenig's race where we started with plus 23 and we're just trying to stay above water. In that race, we're starting at plus two. Uh, and uh, you know, I don't know that it's possible that any candidate could run 20 points ahead of the president. Uh, but if, if we find that Donald Trump loses Boone County, which is a real possibility uh, by 15 to 20 points, uh, I, I just don't know if there's anything, uh, unfortunately, that Caleb can do. Now, going back to the money aspect, the, when I say, when I, I do agree with you. I think Judy Baker has been vastly underrated as far as her chances during this cycle for a lot of reasons. She has been unsuccessful in the last three elections, but she's a well-known entity in Boone County. Um, and also, she, when she ran for state treasurer, she won Boone County, even though she lost a bunch of other counties. And the thing that people keep saying the reason why they think Caleb Rowden has an edge is he has, just has more money than, than Judy Baker does. 
But it, does money matter that much if Trump is tanking so badly in Boone County that he can't make that routing can't make up for it in Cooper, basically? Well, and that's the concern. I mean, there there's a certain point at which, you know, Republicans have a certain ceiling in Boone County. And if that ceiling in Boone County, no matter what amount of money is spent, is 45, 46 percent. Uh, then, you know, it, it's kind of out of our hands. Uh, we had a great year in 2016, uh, and we're doing, I got to tell you, Caleb Rowden, and I should say this up front, Caleb Rowden is going to be better for the state. It's going to be better for the Missouri Senate than Judy Baker. But we're in a we're in a race right now in a year in which it just may not be possible to hold that seat. We're going to continue to do everything we can, and we'll see, you know, if he's not successful, what happens. But I'm, I'm expecting that he is ultimately going to pull that race out. I think he's working very hard, just like Andrew Koenig is. And so I think I think we'll have a full complement of Republicans in January. Is, are there enough members of the conservative caucus to even win a major leadership race like that? Obviously, seven is good, but <laughs> there'll probably be 21 and there may be the rest of the caucus may be like, no way we want a non-conservative caucus. So is that conflict kind of a false conflict because you just don't have the numbers, basically? Well, honestly, I, I think that the, the supposed conflict between conservative caucus members and non-members is something that is followed a lot more closely than actually perhaps warrants in terms of actual existence. Uh, I think that it, it provides a certain element of, of scandal and, and, and espionage, whatever word you want to use, that, that probably doesn't exist. You know, I, I know all the members of the Republican caucus have great relationships with one another. And I would tell you, as it relates to leadership races, anybody who has ever run a leadership race never really had the luxury of starting with the, the number of votes they needed in order to, to uh, be successful in that race. Every time a leader has come forward, conservative caucus, non-conservative caucus, long before you and I were engaged in politics, it's because somebody came forward who was able to forge a coalition that represented the different portions of the Republican Party. Some of those are on the more conservative end of the spectrum. Some of those are not. Either of those are okay. And we'll, you know, we don't know yet quite, quite I think, because quite honestly, most folks are expecting Caleb to win. Uh, we don't know what that looks like if he doesn't. Well, thank you so much for joining me at this beautiful St. Louis Bread Company. It is probably the finest St. Louis Bread Company I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter or learn more about your campaign? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. So on Facebook, I'm at, at, at Igle for Mo, And on Twitter, I'm at, at Bill Igle. So reach out to me anytime. I'm the only one that posts on my social media. Oh, okay. So there's not a ghostwriter that's doing your, your, your tweets, basically. Exactly. So if you, if you write a really incendiary tweet, it's you. It's, it's me. All right. Well, that's me. We'll keep that in mind. Unless I get hacked, which I'm not expecting. We, we'll keep that in mind in case <laughs> uh, you, you, uh, you create a lot of chaos. Until next time, so long.